welcome. On a Father's Day Sunday, it's a, a real privilege to again um, be teaching on Father's Day in a book I really, 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 really do love, um, you know, uh, to kind of mirror Pastor E's um, introduction to Ecclesiastes. There is a, there is a, there is an honesty to the book and, uh, and an evangelistic outlook to the book that is very important, I think, uh, because it allows us to be quite honest with the, the issues that people tend to have with not just religion, but just life in general. And so I think one of the important things about dealing with Ecclesiastes and one of the, some of the commentators I've read have, um, have been said is that it's very important not to kind of Christianize it, not, not to try and kind of smooth over it, but to let it speak. And, um, and I think that's a good thing. We need to let it speak in its own voice because, like he said, it's, it, it will bring us to somewhere. It, it wants to work out those issues that we have. And some, you know, the whole idea of pretending that, we, um, that life is, is, a, is an easy thing is, is, again, not good to forget. Um, so before I start, I just want to probably take a slightly different approach to... Um, how I'm going to teach this. I'm going to, I'm going to kind of go through this three, kind of three sections that I want to go through um, in Ecclesiastes 8, um, 1 to 9, um, and then, then 10 to uh, 15, and then 16 to 17. And I want to read those as I'm kind of tackling them because they're, they're like, as it is, when you're dealing with a unit, you want to kind of like deal with that unit, break down what it means, and kind of like collectively show you what it's teaching us. So I want to do it that way today rather than read the whole text through and then have you try to kind of recapitulate it in your own mind. Um, and so I want to start off by praying for me and for you. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for Father's Day 2016. I thank you, Father, that you have uh, uh, again revealed yourself um, as a father to the world and most particularly through your son, Christ, who is your true son and true God. And we thank you that today we are sons, Lord, and he is Father through Christ. And we thank you for the Father's heart that um, so loves your creation, Lord, that you would reveal yourself so that we can know you and we can love you, Lord, and again, receive the love that you give to us. Help us to understand this, Lord. Help us to understand it, particularly as we go through um, Ecclesiastes, Lord, today. Father, help us to, to, again, be able to reach out, Father, beyond ourselves, beyond our own pains, beyond our own uh, distractions, and connect with your word today, Lord. I pray, Father, that we will have peace as we hear your word, that, Lord, that even if it comes in conviction, even if it comes there, Lord God, as, a, as, a, 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 as a, an encouragement, Lord, whatever your way your word meets each individual, and even me today, Lord, that you, we would be humble enough to receive it and be thankful, Father, that you care to reveal yourself in such, such great and profound ways. Thank you, Lord. Help me, Lord, to teach. Help us to listen and obey your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, <laughs> I 
How to begin? Um, let me read through one to, to nine first. I think that will probably be the best way. So if you, I'm reading from the ESV, and um, just follow whatever version you have if you can. Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A wise man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's, man's trouble lies heavy on him, for he does not know what is, to be, what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. So that's the first section. I, <laughs> I, was, I was reading a comic book the other day, and I, you know, I do read comic books, and um, I came across an interesting definition and of wisdom in it. And the man, strange enough, was reflecting on his father's wisdom. And the character was saying, uh, my father used to tell me that knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. And he said, wisdom is knowing that you don't put a tomato in a fruit salad. It's quite, it's quite profound, isn't it? I actually liked it. I said, wow, look at this. My sermon's already writing itself. And so I, you know, and from a comic book. I ain't open no comic, commentaries yet. And so I, 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 I wanted to start, because I said, that is amazing. That was a, that was a pretty good thing. And, and it taught me that knowledge isn't strictly intuitive, or wisdom isn't strictly intuitive from knowledge. Because you would simply say, well, all tomatoes, if you're making a fruit salad, you can put a tomato in it. But those of us who know about tomatoes and how to cook with tomatoes, we realize that it's, it's sweet if you put it in a savory dish, but it's quite sour if you put it in a sweet dish. That's a simple thing. That's a simple matter of it. And so the problem with science, and sometimes the way science commentates on things that it knows but has no wisdom to be able to apply. I mean, we heard uh, Jason talk about, uh, who is it, Hawkins. People know, have people, there are people who are full of knowledge, but no wisdom. And we have to be honest to them. And we say, we have to say that knowledge, you know, when it comes to knowledge, Stephen Hawkins has a lot of knowledge. He will be able to tell you that a tomato is a fruit but he wouldn't be able to tell you every way, as far as wisdom is defined, how to actually use a tomato properly. 
And that's the truth we have to face today when scientists try to make comments as if they have wisdom. And it's knowing the difference between the person you're look at your, who are you listening to, are they filled with knowledge or are they filled with wisdom? Big difference. Big difference. And that's why I think this first verse is, is quite interesting. Who knows the interpretation of a thing? Because that's what the teacher is telling you. Wisdom is quite difficult. Which way do I go? How do I use this properly? Who knows the interpretation of a thing? This first section, again, you know, strange enough, I'm going to dedicate to my dad. And I, I call this first section, Fix Your Face. <laughs> now, I don't always mean to be cultural. I try to avoid anything. But that was something that my dad always told me when I was growing up. Fix your face. And for those of you who had similar upbringings, you would, have, you would know um, fix your face was a, was, was, a, was a kind of a strict command. You had a, you had a countdown that never, you never necessarily had um, verbally, but you knew it was coming if you didn't. You know, and, and to be honest with you, I used to think about my dad saying this, and I said, well, you know, I have no power over my face. If I'm unhappy... I've got to show it. My, my emotions, how can you try to rule my emotions? You, you pretty much control everything in my life. All of a sudden, now you want to talk, show how I feel and how I express myself. You know? And isn't that basically you calling me to be fake? What kind of way to teach me? But very much like the second part of verse 1, it's showing you that basically um, <laughs> I'm showing defiance. I'm continuing to fight him, but I'm doing it through my expressions. That's what he was teaching me. I wasn't yelling at him. I wasn't physically attacking him. But I was letting him know that I was not in accord with him. And so I would sit, and I would be, I'm going to sit here, but I'm going to make you feel it that I'm not happy to be here. It's passive aggression, isn't it? Did you know that passive aggressive is still being aggressive? Are you aware that just because you're not yelling or just because you're not hitting somebody, that you're still actually in an act of aggression? My dad taught me from a very young age that we should not defy the authorities around us by showing undue disregard for their authority, especially through our expressions. And this is why this section about authority is important, because this is not just important about how we act in front of kings and queens and governors and, and bosses and the likes. This is really about how we treat each other as well. And you will see as we kind of go down into the text that there are proper times to voice your disapproval. And only do it when those times come. The question of this text is, is you know, one of the things that kind of lurk behind this text um, is, 
do, the, do kings, do rulers rule absolutely? And we need to find the tension of the text. Because obviously it's telling us to respect authority, but is it telling us that basically, all, you know, do all people rule absolutely? Unchallenged. The soft answer to that is no. But we have to remember the context of this particular text. As an ancient text, monarchies would have been the norm. There's no such thing, um, so, so to speak, as kind of prime ministers, even though um, Joseph is called the prime minister of Egypt. But again, he was, as it were, a powerless prime minister, prime minister because who was the ruling authority of, of Egypt? It was the pharaoh. Today, we, we, in England, we see it in a different way. The prime minister rules, and the queen follows. So in the ancient context, monarchies were, were the norm of the day. And monarchies tend to be absolute. And that's why it says... They do whatever they please. Those of you familiar with um, the age of revolution, specifically in, in Europe, would come to know that there was a time when the people, the populace of many European countries became fed up with people who kept on saying, I do whatever I please. And monarchies started to topple. Quite literally, in France, heads toppled. Guillotines were designed by the French to um, remove the aristocracy. And so, after democracy, um, after that, democracy came in vogue. And people started to put, put, um, put governments in place where they could question them. And hence, that's why one of the texts says, because we wanted to be able to say, what are you doing? Explain to us how you are governing us. Why are you making those particular decisions? So that's the context of the ancient situation there, where all kings were pretty much despots. But I think it would be a mistake to think that today governments don't have the similar tendency to be despots. In the last century, we saw Hitler rise to power through the democratic system. Once he was there, he removed all opposition and set himself up as dictator. More recently, we have seen Russian Prime Minister, um, President Putin put himself in a position where he rules Russia unopposed. I think it was uh, reading an article from, uh, I think it was The Guardian, saying that 2015 marked Russia's departure from an authoritarian democracy into a dictatorship. So it, one of the articles says that one of his oppositions, one of, it says, it's so obvious now what's going on in Russia. It's, uh, I was reading an article where one of his opponents was shot literally yards outside of the Kremlin. It's like he runs unopposed. And this is not to speak anything of China and North Korea, isn't it? And various other um, 
dictatorships we've seen. In our modern context, we have not escaped dictatorships and people who want to rule absolutely. It's, it's one of these moments where I can kind of look and I say, the kind of, there is, I mean, the theme of Ecclesiastes, one of the themes I, I kind of get out is, is that there's nothing new under the sun. And so this whole idea of trying to ascribe this as an ancient text so that somehow humans have surpassed all of this just reminds me, when we kind of think of our modern context, have we really evolved? Do we really live in an anti-despotic age? As Christians, we are supposed to. I mean, one of the, one of the things we see from right from um, the beginning of the Bible right to its end is that we are supposed to be in line with the government. We are supposed to uh, uh, appreciate the ruling powers. We see this particularly powerfully in Paul's writings that we should respect the authorities around us. And we are, um, and, and it's part of, our witness, you might say, of us being Christians, that we should respect the authorities that we, are, that we have. And, and I believe that that's not just those who sit in particular government powers, but I think basically right down to the home, because that's where it begins. But this is, the Bible does not give, though, as I've, I've already alluded to with my soft no, that they are absolute rulers. And there is a trend within the Bible where people have defied leadership, have defied their ruler. In particular, I would say Moses is a great example of someone who challenged Pharaoh. And his policy of unjust, the unjust slavery of the Israelites. We also see Sajak, Meshach, and Abednego defy Nebuchadnezzar, don't we? They defy him over his state-instituted idolatry because obviously they realize that this is something you cannot do. So it's one of those things where I find, um, even within our own context, and this is a side note from me, please forgive me, but I, I need to kind of say this. I was avoiding it, but I think I have to say it. Our own government overriding our own religious freedoms. There's nothing to say that we want to live in a land where we want to live with all people as equals. But there are certain things, especially with um, our current government, where they are increasingly overriding our religious freedoms. And I think it's important to understand those ten that tension of do, does Cameron have absolute authority over us? And the answer is no. Is it true that if we obey the government, we will never exper experience any harm? <laughs> is that what he's promising? Is that what the, 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 the teacher is telling us? That um, to, to live and obey everything that we are told, will we actually avoid any judgment? Well, 
we would not necessarily, I mean, though we may, we may live wisely and actually conduct ourselves well, I mean, we have to be honest. If someone is paranoid, they need very little recourse to start judging us. I mean, the paranoia itself is creating the evidence, despite what they see. And so the, the, the tendency of most despotic leaders is that they actually are quite paranoid, the fear of losing power. And so it is not true that we will not experience harm, but then I don't think the teacher is saying this because he believes it's true. Especially considering his context, I think he's almost saying it sarcastically because it leads to his point. I think at the end of the day, he is alluding to the king of kings in the background. And I believe that he is softly bringing us to that point where if we obey that king above all other kings, we will truly not experience any harm. We may experience death at the hand of a despot, but we will not experience the second death at the hand of the king. And I believe he's softly bringing us to that. So there is a truth to it, but it's what king is he talking about? And I think he's talking about the king of kings in which we will be brought to. Verse 5. A little note on this. Um, There's a time for diplomacy. And 5B, you know, let me, let me just refresh us on that. And it says, um, you will know the proper time and the just way. And I think, again, this is a point, my point as, as Christians where I, I say there's a proper time and within our own context where we, are, we voice our opinions. We have um, a referendum coming, don't we, this week. I don't know how many of you are prepared to vote. I'm, I'm not going to encourage you either way. But I would say that these are the points where we have to make our voice known. There's no point, you know, I, I mean, I, I used to live, I mean, you know, in our workplaces, we know that there's a lot of people who will, who will voice various things about the government. Oh, da, 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 and I don't like that. And, you know, but, and then, you know, you're going to go, what are you, you going to vote? And they're oh, I'm not going to vote. It's not, and, then they, and then they'll compound it by saying, well, it's not worth it, is it? It's, we're all the same. And I, and, and I kind of sympathize with that, but I, I went and I, the other day and I voted in the mayoral elections and I voted for the underdog. <laughs> Anybody but the people I knew I couldn't trust. I, I, I'm making my voice, you know, I'm putting my, vo- my voice where I'm saying, let's, let's see if you guys, let's see the Green Party has something. I'd much rather do that than do nothing. And it's as important as, um, even with despotic leaders, as we see with people like Nebuchadnezzar, there were periods where it seems that he was open to hearing what people say. In particular, it would have, you know, it would appear that he was open even when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had defied him, where he was open to listen to them. Why didn't you bow down? And they made his vo- their voice known. And so there are points where we are seeing that the king is open to diplomacy. And he's saying the wise person knows those times. 
If you're wise, you will know that your right to vote should mean something. And it's your way of voicing your opinion. Or, as uh, some certain other um, lobbyist groups would do, is that we can lobby. We can talk to our government. We can talk to our local MPs. And we can start to say to them, what do you think about this policy? We can start to question them at their surgeries. What's going to happen to my religious freedoms? What are you doing to protect those? And we can make them feel it when it comes to the election time, if they are not in agreement with us. Let those who they are in agreement with vote for them. But if they're not in agreement with those things which are fundamentally important to us, no matter what economic benefits they bring to us, we should vote where our loyalties truly lie. It's about as political I'm gonna to get today. But that's where we're at. How do we deal with authority? Verses 6 and 7. When all else fails, we have to leave a tyrant to God. That's where these verses bring us. There is no guarantee that the justice that we, that we, we hope to see will come swiftly. There's no point playing out with these little scenarios of, you know, what if Hitler was never born, we could kill him, or, you know. The reality is, is that God allows them to rule. And there are certain tyrants that were in place within the ancient world and in our own context now who God has placed there. And not necessarily for that tyrant's benefit. Um, I, I, I like something that my, um, you know, I, I had a, I never did many of the, um, the crossing culture modules at, at, um, at my college, but um, there was something that, the, <laughs> that Ray Porter, one of the lecturers here, said about um, how often the tyrants within certain countries have brought a loud revival to come, particularly in China. That how the, the kind of despotic rule has actually led people to look for answers beyond humanity. In other words, when you, when you see clear examples of government failing, where they're not buying into this whole idea that the state is, gonna, is, gonna, is all supreme and is going to help me, and, and by, all of a sudden they're open to the gospel. Because they now have to look beyond what they see in front of them. And so tyrants serve a purpose. And in a sense, sometimes God prolonging their stay helps more people to be saved. I, I, I appreciate that because of the way he delivered that, and I, th and I think he is right to have said it the way he said it. Um, particular people, you know, like Stalin, Hitler, Pol Pot, um, are people who you would say, I would say that even though they did a lot of damage, some died early, and the wars that they had to live through actually brought their regimes to an abrupt end. In other words, if they lived a little bit longer, particularly Stalin, he might have done more damage. And if World War II had never escalated to the level it did, um, Hitler may have had more power in Europe than we would care to have uh, seen him to be. And then Pol Pot, again, the Vietnam War. 
brought his regime to an end much more suddenly. So this whole idea of wars are no good, <laughs> I don't believe it. Jesus was not a pacifist. There are very necessary wars. So God will ultimately bring the judgment. And like I said, I think that sometimes these judgments come in the form of um, the actions that we see either in wars or people just have heart attacks and all the rest of it. But then there are very, there are very meaningful ways in which God brings these rules to an end. Verse 8 is a, is a difficult one to understand because... Um, because the ruah, the spirit, can mean wind and that. But um, one particular commentator I found helpful on this particular verse said that he's basically bringing us back to the fact that, you know, again, maybe even in the course of the time where, where despots believed that they were actually the gods, they were either the sons of gods or they were gods themselves. And verse 8, and I, I, and I think he's right when he says that, basically he's bringing us to the old understanding that basically rulers at the end of the day are just people. They have no power to live or make themselves live longer than they are supposed to, and there just comes a point where they just die. And they have no power over it. And I think verse 8 is bringing the reality that these are just people. They have no ability to stop their day of death. And that even the wickedness, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting that even sometimes the very wickedness that they have done is actually what comes back on their head. The way that they've run the state as a tyrant and as paranoid people ultimately comes and jumps back on them. We see, specifically in, these, uh, in the ancient context, that subjects were not, um, were not shy of killing their leaders, especially in bed. <laughs> you know, where he's, you know, and that's, I, I think that's even interesting is when you can you take what eight is trying to say about the humanity of the leader is that basically there comes a point where he has to sleep. And if his guards, a guard in his bedchamber, basically decide to turn on him and kill him, he has no power over that. His own wickedness, the own fear that he has instigated comes back on his head. The fear that he's tried to live. And, and you know, again, there's something... Um, oh, what is his name? I can't remember. I know Pastor E will remember. But there was something an old charismatic pastor used to say where he says that basically when your when misery factor exceeds your fear factor, basically you will do anything. If you rule in such a way where people are saying, well, I no longer fear death because I'm so miserable, people will be prepared to do anything. And all of a sudden, it will be, a, you know, you have a coup on your hands. Because there's nothing to lose. I, can't, I cannot continue to live in this misery. And as it were, their whole evil comes back on their head. And that's the illusion of power, isn't it? As verse 9 kind of alludes to, is that, um, <laughs> that power is, you, you can't, 
No one can tame it. No one can take power to themselves and then say, now this belongs to me. Even while you are, as it were, power is, is surrounding you and you're using it to your, to your benefit, it already is enticing other people to challenge you. And people are going, I want that power. And it, they're not necessarily saying, I just want power. They're saying, I want that power that you've got. And that's why a ruler can rule to his own harm. Because that power now is seducing somebody else, and somebody else comes and takes it, and now it's that fateful master. It's, um, you know, it's not in my notes, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a Star Wars allusion here. It's almost like the whole, the whole idea of the dark side of the force, isn't it? The fact that all these guys, the apprentices, will kill their master in order to get their power, and then they take on an apprentice, and then they will kill their master. And it's this whole idea of evil being like that. It entices the person to seek what their master has and take it and use it, and then they're they're enticed to take another apprentice, and then that person wants that power. And it's a continual cycle. That's what it means to rule to your harm. Power will not be your friend. And absolute power does corrupt absolutely. We're going to move on to our second section. Verses 10 to 15. I'm going to read through that quickly and then we're going to Pace through that. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things, which also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like the shadow, because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity, and I commend joy, for man has no good thing under the sun but to eat and drink, and be joyful, for this will go, go with him in his toil, though the days of his life that God, through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. This second section of 10 to 15 I've called, Does Crime Pay? Um, and it starts with burial. And again, uh, to kind of paint some of the ancient context here, Burials were very important things within the, in the ancient world. And even to the day in, in many East, Middle Eastern culture, the whole idea of having a good burial was very important. It's kind of the reverse today. Today, you know, the burial seems to be very, very little about what the person, you know, in other words, people tend to be not that invested in how they're going to be buried. And it tends to be more for those who have missed them, the, their friends and the family around them, burial tends to be about them. 
And in many ways, that's a good thing, and I will get, I'll, I'll get on to that. But in the ancient context, you know, the, you know, the kind of promises that, you know, you will bury me and you'll bury me well would have been very important. A father to his son, you know. I want to be buried in this plot. And, and we see this in particular, um, you know, one of the, uh, the, six, the sequences where this was quite important was like Joseph getting his sons to promise that they will take his bones back to Canaan. He says to his son, take, do not leave me here. So a good burial was important. Another important thing was, um, even, and, and, and I'll probably go a bit more into this, was that certain bad kings were never buried in the place where the royalty was buried. You know, I was just looking through some of these scriptures and, you know, uh, Manasseh, for in particular, was buried in his garden and not buried in the tomb of his father's. And so in that sense, they dishonored him because he was a dishonorable king. And if you go through kings and you'll see those wicked kings, that they were not buried in the tomb of their fathers where David was buried. So burial was a big deal. And so sometimes we have to get that cultural context to understand why does he start this section by burial? He's saying it's very, very bad that a wicked person should have a good burial. The procession he seems to be describing is that, you know, that normally you would have a procession that started at the, um, at the synagogue. So that's the holy place. And the procession would lead, you know, when people would be obviously, you know, cattle wailing and whatever they're doing, and they will lead you to your burial, and all these people will be singing your praises, and, and no doubt probably rabbis and the, and, and the such were doing this. So it's obviously to say that probably wicked people were probably the wealthy people of the time and could afford to that and obviously had probably put money down so that these rabbis would conduct that particular service. Money talks, doesn't it? In the ancient context, to have your body out in the open to the point where... um, you, are, you, you have died, and then the, basically the dogs and the birds and whatnot um, are eating your body. That was a great dishonor. And we see Jezebel was prophesied that she will have that type of death because of the wickedness that she had done in Israel. She said that the dogs will eat, lick up your blood. That was the, that was the way the ancient world would say, this is how God's going to show how wicked you are. You won't even be buried. It's kind of weird that when, um, oh, who was his name, took over, Jehu, took over the kingdom, he kind of like went in and ate and, ate and then uh, forgot about Jezebel's body. And then when he said, oh, yeah, she's the queen, uh, oh, let me go and bear, the, 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 the dogs had already eaten her. She'd already been eaten. It's, it's like even when he thought, oh, yeah, I should bury her because she's a queen, it never happened. So the burial aspect was, why should wicked people get a good burial? One of the things we have to appreciate about being in, a, in, a, in an Old Testament book is that at this particular point, we don't have a fully fleshed out doctrine of the afterlife. There, is, there, there are those who believe that there, were, that there was a belief in the afterlife, but there was no doctrine about what that looked like. In other words, they knew that there's a, a, an eternal God alludes to that, that there is some sort of afterlife. And as we saw the, um, 
the, the teacher kind of says that, and the Spirit goes up to God in chapter 3, didn't we? And the Spirit goes up to God basically means that, well, I don't know. I mean, what does that look like? What does that existence look like? So in that day, they believed in an afterlife, but they didn't know what it looked like. So the whole idea is that they have to judge things in a, as it were, an under-the-sun perspective. Well, what I see, and so what he sees and what troubles him is wicked people getting a good burial. Because it almost alludes to the fact that he's going to live well, or they're going to live well. But looking at it from a New Testament perspective, we have a fully fleshed out view of the afterlife, don't we? That doctrine does exist. And so today, the whole idea of burial takes in a whole new perspective. To that extent, um, as I said, we, we, we want to honor those who die as believers, as die as confessing believers. It's important for us to kind of have those, that burial which celebrates their life. And we have done so recently, haven't we? We have wanted to honor our sister who has died and gone to glory. And that's because we believe that she is a better, in a better life now. Sister Fonke. And it's important that we do that. Because now we have theology that helps us to understand that death leads to glory. Death leads to a life beyond the life of the, the misery of this life, as it were, where Things can be quite futile. Now, there is perfection. The, um, looking at the textual variants, um, let me, of... There's a, there's a word there that they said is either praised or is either forgotten. That the wickedness, you know, because it's sentenced against evil deed is... No, 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 that's it. Sorry, in verse 10 it says, um, the holy place, they used to go in and out of the holy place and they were praised or either forgotten. So there's a textual variant there. I don't want to go into it, but it, there is almost like um, this whole idea that the wicked person is now praised or their wickedness is forgotten at the point of their burial. And, um, and, the, and the teacher is questioning that. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about this, text. I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if this is, is this the way eulogizing has kind of come from? This whole idea of not speaking ill of the dead. The whole idea that no matter how wicked a person's life is, that we kind of just sit there and kind of pause over that and just say, oh, it was good that they lived <laughs> I, I, I think there's a point where we need to think about this, isn't it? What do we do with, with, with people who have lived notably bad lives? What do we do? I don't know, like I'm thinking of the gangster who's, you know, served crack to his community and has lived, put them in terror and all the rest of it. Do you, do you, you know... Do you make them feel like 
they're in a better place. <laughs> Does our theology allow us to do that? And I, I was trying to think of a, of a, of, of a situation where, um, where this could kind of be played out. And, I, and, and what came to mind was, was, the, uh, was, was the funeral of, of Baroness Thatcher. Because it really polarized the British public. Is this woman where, you know, who was uh, the trade union buster, the, 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 the prime minister that brought in mass privatization that, um, you know, many people felt indifferent about her, but there were a lot of people who felt that giving her a state funeral would be a mistake. It was such that there were, at the, the announcement of her death and then on, a, on the day that she was buried, that certain people actually had street parties celebrating her death. Um, I was reading up a fact that um, I didn't realize it at the time, I'm not a follower of the charts all the rest of it, that certain people actually decided to um, bring out a, a record, re-release a record that uh, Ding Dong, The Wicked Witch is Dead and apparently went to number two in England and went to number one in Scotland. <laughs> it was just a strange bit too, when you're researching a, a, a theme, and, a, and I said, wow, I actually hit a gold mine here, haven't I? This, people really actually felt quite away about Thatcher and her life. And to be honest with you, we're still feeling the effects of Thatcherism today. Our, you know, if you feel weaker and have less rights in your workplace, Thank Thatcher. If you're dealing with a zero-hour contract, these are rights that she, she, she gave more power to the private sector. The mass selling off of houses, uh, catastrophic house prices. And so you might actually say that some of the people who had house parties were uh, uh, street parties actually <laughs> might be onto something. If you really feel that Thatcher did very little to benefit England, the Iron Lady, as they called her. But she had her supporters as well. And she was given a, though not an official state funeral, she was given a, a, a very grand ceremonial funeral. Um, but I, I guess, especially as she presided over a war, which England won, um, and other things. But I don't want to debate that, but I want us to think about that. What do we do with wicked people when they die? If we really believe they are wicked. Verse 11 shows us the whole idea of what happens when we, 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 we come to that point where, um, where the wicked people are promoted as heroes. What do we do then? When they are actually... Um, living the good life, and then the good people are living, as it were, the miserable life. Today, we, 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 there's a tendency to kind of praise the, the shark-like businessman. The gangster rapper. There are people who genuinely want to have that type of lifestyle, where they can feel indifferent to the people around them, where they can actually use them for their own benefit. 
you know, again, interestingly enough, when you think, so, when you think about this whole idea of how people see villains as, as heroes, I, again, I stumbled upon another interesting fact. You know, Stalin was nominated for Nobel, uh, two Nobel Peace Prizes. In 1945 and 1948, a man responsible for, for millions of deaths of Russians was nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize. I, I, I do challenge you, because if you don't think about these things, I believe you need to. Who are your role models in life? And what does that say about you? We need to think these things through. Who am, I, who am I trying to emulate? Especially if they're business figures and, 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 and such. What do, these, what do these guys do? Is it just their strength you like? And you kind of parse over their, their, their kind of other flow, that faults where they don't really care? I mean, you know, again, we've seen certain businessmen like um, Philip Greed in the news. A lot of BHS staff who have no pension now. Think of the late um, Murdoch, who ran away with a lot of people's pensions. No doubt there was a lot of people who looked up to these guys and thought, oh, man, I want to be a businessman like them, you know. What does that say when we admire that type of power, that type of business attitude? The teacher is a firm believer in the retribution principle. The retribution principle is basically that the good people will live good lives and bad people will live bad lives. But the retribution principle doesn't necessarily work the way that we see it. I, I, I kind of thought about even how we deal with that as a, even in a modern context. And I, I believe that sometimes when we are watching movies and TV shows that there is um, that almost these, our watching of these things is not merely for the entertainment value. That there is an act of catharsis. Uh, 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 big word alert. All right, okay, <laughs> catharsis. The purging of emotions or relieving of emotional tension, especially through certain kinds of arts or tragedy or music. So sometimes, like I said, when we see the, you know, when we see Clint Eastwood blow the, 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 the bad guy's head off. We're like, good. I'm, I'm going to give a story. I'm going to embarrass Pete a little bit here. Um, we, a, a number of years ago, Pete came around, and he's a big lover of Westerns. And I want to give you an example. And I, and, I, and I put a classic Western on, an old spaghetti Western, and I said, Pete, you've got to watch this. And Pete being a, uh, you know, the kind of guy that likes to watch a Western, he, um, <laughs> we watched it. But this is no ordinary Spaghetti Western. In this Spaghetti Western, the, 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 the fast gun-slinging guy um, who comes into the town and he's got to take on the bad guys that are putting this town um, under, under, <laughs> under a hard time, ends up basically giving up himself for the woman that he loves in the town. He ends up having his hands beaten to the point where his fast gun-toting ways have gone. In the final showdown, he is unable to shoot them down, and he gets shot. The great silence. 
The Great Silence is the name of the movie. And then you basically see the bad guys ravage the town and walk off. Well, no, they actually ride off on their horses. Pete was incensed. (laughs) (laughs) He looked at me and he said, why did you show me this move? This has made me feel, I don't feel good. And he's right. Because his sense of catharsis was not given to him. He wasn't merely looking at it for entertainment. He was looking for justice. I want to see justice. I want to see something of justice in this life. But we're living in strange times where, um, as uh, Isaiah 5 puts it, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put dark for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. We see more and more shows which promote the bad guy that come from the context of the bad guy. And we end up, strange enough, rooting for him. You know, various shows like Hannibal, um, that's the Hannibal Lecter show, where we're now focused on a serial killer as a kind of, I don't know, we can't even call him a good guy. But we're, we're looking at the narrative from his perspective. And it's almost given us a, an obscure picture of evil. I mean, we have to look at films like The Godfather as well, where we're looking at the mafia from the inside. And to some extent, we're walking along the brutality of Michael Corleone. What's skillfully done is that the fact is that his violence always comes back on him. But we're looking at it from the perspective of the bad guy. And sometimes that warps us. Sometimes we have to realize why we are putting these people up as heroes, why these young people promote these guys as heroes. But the teacher, in the end, basically says, I recommend you live a good life. And even though the wicked seem to have a good time and seem to have a meal of things, he says, live humbly with what you've got. I like this Proverbs 10.22. It says, the blessings of the Lord makes one rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. Live well with what you have. Live well with the little that you have, and enjoy it, and do not be envious of the wicked. As, uh, Dave, as David in the psalm says, I've seen their end. <laughs> it's not good. Uh, I've got. All right, let's, let's, let's roll through this um, last section. Two verses, but actually it's the one I've got the most on. But um, the Lord knows. And it said 16 and 17. It says, when I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night... Do one's eye, day nor night, do one's eyes see sleep. Then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is under the sun. However, however much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. What is this saying? This last section I called revelation versus knowledge, or knowledge versus revelation. What does this mean? The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the works of the law, or the words of the law. 
Deuteronomy 29, 29, good verse to remember. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight, Isaiah 5, 21. Why do we read horoscopes? Why do we visit palm readers? Uh, why do we go to special prophecy services? You know? I know some of you did. <laughs> why? Why do we do it? Because we, 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 don't want the, we don't want the future to be a mystery. We want to be prepared for it. It... it frustrates us that we don't have that power over our life because in a sense knowledge of the future gives us more power gives us feeds our autonomy you know why do we um have um <laughs> insurance policies and why do we have um build up investment portfolios and, and invest in properties and save for a rainy day is because if the unthinkable does happen we want to have we want to kind of minimize the fallout we want security. We want to feel like I've got that power, I've got that stuff under control. I've got a nice bit of stuff. And, and to some extent, when we look at that, 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 that kind of hefty amount in our account, we kind of feel good. I'm kind of prepared for the future. What am I trusting God for? I am not denying that you need to have these things. I would not travel without insurance, especially to America. <laughs> but what I'm saying is, is that Am I trusting ultimately that insurance policy will bail me out? What am I really hoping in? Like I said, I will treat those things um, in accordance to what I believe is me being responsible. And then everything else goes to God. God, you watch my trip. You help me understand Help me prepare if I should ever get ill. You would do that. One of the things I think that we're struggling with is that we, we refuse to live by revelation. We refuse to live by revelation. We want lots of knowledge. We want to have all these things that kind of come and, and to remove all the surprises of our lives, and we want to live by revelation. We don't, we don't want to live by revelation so that we would have to depend on God. That's what the Deuteronomy 29, 29 alludes to, is that there are certain things that just God knows. And this is what these last two verses refer to. There are knowledges, there, is, there are aspects of knowledge that we cannot have access to, no matter how long we study. There are no real, when it really comes down to it, there are no real predictable patterns where we can have a foolproof view of what the future holds. We don't really know when the stock market will crash. We don't really know where the next natural disaster is going to come. With all these computers, they don't even really know whether it's going to rain or not tomorrow. They're all predictions. Why are we struggling with this? What are we, what are we suffering with? I want, to listen, I want to take you to a guy called Immanuel Kant. And he was, uh, again, known as the father of the Enlightenment. I want you to listen to what he is saying. And I think you will identify with what's going on in our own heart and what's going out in the hearts of men. And he says, what is the enlightenment? He gives a definition. Enlightenment is man's emergence from his self-imposed non-age. What is non-age? Non-age is the inability to use one's own understanding without another's guidance. This non-age is self-imposed. If it causes lies not 
It's caused lies, not in the lack of understanding, but in the indecision and lack of courage to use one's own mind without another's guidance. Dare to know. Have the courage to use your own understanding is therefore the motto of the Enlightenment. What are barriers to the Enlightenment? He says this, the Enlightenment requires nothing but freedom and the most innocent of all that may be called freedom. Freedom to make public use of one's reason in all matters. Now I hear the cry from all sides. Do not argue, the officer says. Do not argue, drill. The tax collector, do not argue, pay. The pastor, do not argue, believe. Only one ruler in the world says, argue as much as you, uh, you please, but obey. We find restrictions on freedom everywhere. But which restriction is harmful to enlightenment? Which restriction is innocent? And what advances enlightenment? I reply, the public use of one's reason must be free at all times. And this alone can bring enlightenment to mankind. When did the enlightenment begin? Many people will say in the 17th century. <laughs> but I would argue Genesis 3. Take, then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die for God knows that in the day that you eat of, eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You will know for yourself. Why take God's word for it? Use your own understanding. Gain it for yourself. Kant is only repeating what the serpent has already said. The age of enlightenment, quote-unquote, began from the beginning when mankind fell. All Kant is doing is, again, the theme of Ecclesiastes, nothing new under the sun. He's seeing that this, this applies to all life. Man's desire to master, to have mastery over revelation. Why accept someone's word for it? Figure it out for yourself. Think for yourself. This is, this is one of the things I'm, you know, I, I, I'm getting to wonder why um, so many black people are on this kind of um, black enlightenment thing. And I think that it's happened late with us. I'm going to be honest with you. This whole idea, I've got to think for myself, you know, I've got to understand for myself. It's hap it, it, it almost, what happened in Europe has delayed. And now, all of a sudden, in the emergence of Garveyism, all of a sudden, we are now in this place where man is like, well, I'm, well I, don't, I don't go to no book. Man's got to think and reason, and man's got to sit down with, 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 with his pipe and figure out. And, and This is where we're in with, with, with black communities. This enlightenment has almost caught up with us, for those of us who live amongst black community and has now experienced all these people talking foolishness. That I'm going to sit down with my pipe and I'm going to figure out the universe it's, like, it's almost like bringing them to that is almost like, why would I even need to say this to you? But that's the point. Man refuses to live by revelation. Why, have you ever wondered why Jesus said, only you must enter the kingdom of God as children? That's found in Matthew 18.3, Mark 10.15. Luke 18, 17. The synopsis gospel pretty much says this is the categoric teaching of Jesus. He always says it. You have to enter like a child. You have to come to learn with the limits of maturity as an adult. And I'm sorry I'm taking you over time, but let me run through this. 
We can never outgrow God. Our children will outgrow us. But there is no comparison to us and God. Our children will grow up and no longer need our support. And to some extent, we will need their support in our later years. But that doesn't happen with our relationship with God. We will never be in a point where we are truly independent of God. The creature-created distinction is one that can never be transcended. No matter what Kant thinks, that society has come to a point of evolution where we no longer need, we no longer have those kind of primitive, ancient superstitions anymore. We kind of, we've grown up. That's what the Enlightenment in, implies, that we have, we have come into a new age where man has come into his own and he can now be more free, even free of the bonds of religion. But God always has to humble us. That's what, um, again, Deuteronomy 8.3 says, So he humbled you allowed you to hunger and fed you with manna with which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Ultimately, we always come to a point in our history where we suddenly realize we no longer have the answers. And God says he has to bring us to that point so that we would realize that we need revelation. That, he need, that we need to depend upon it. We run out of answers. He did that with Israel in the desert. Even though they saw the wonders of Egypt and the punishment of the Egyptians, they still didn't believe. And he had to humble them so that they would know that they still need him. Faith is an inescapable reality when it comes to believing in God. But is faith unique to religion? Let me give you a a quick illustration here. You know, um, faith is an inescapable fact that all of us have to live by faith, whether we believe in God or not. I I, I use an illustration of money. When we pick up our promissory notes and we look at it and we see the pound sign on it, we see the queen's head, and we see uh, an inscription from the Bank of England saying that I promise to pay the bearer of such um, whatever pound sign, whatever numerical value that is attached to it. We feel quite well, we feel quite good when we see a lot of those in our pocket or we see lots of you know, zeros in our bank account and we, we tend to feel quite happy that uh, we are richer than most. You know, there's certain other currencies that we don't feel that way about. I know that if I saw a 50-pound note and I saw uh, a, 50 pound, a $50 Jamaican note I, and I could only get one, <laughs> I, I will kind of think, well, you know, though I have a heritage of Jamaican, I actually have greater loyalty to the Queen. <laughs> uh, and we feel that way because we feel that the, 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 the promises that England makes and its economic power is such that, uh, it, it, that that note is more valuable to us. By faith, I believe that the Queen's head should be followed more than any um, Jamaican president. <laughs> well, yeah. I have to start seeing her on a note, and I might start chasing it. But the reality is, is that, the, that that promissory note makes us feel confident. But has anyone ever checked 
Anyone gone to the Bank of England and checked to see if they actually have the assets to give you? Have you got 10 pounds worth of gold to give me? Have you got 10 pounds worth of diamonds to give me? In case this, you know, I need to actually cash in these notes and actually go somewhere. You're all living by faith, just like me, whether you believe it or not. We, we believe that the economy is well simply because life seems to go on. All faith. Faith is not unique to religion. Mankind cannot live but by the revelation, even that's given to him by the state, that all is well. That your £10 is worth £10, even though technically it's not. The problem that we have really is that we, 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 we're not a big believers in the freedom of God. And this is one of the challenges of, of Ecclesiastes, is that the freedom of God is a big deal. God is not a person. God is not a force to be manipulated. God is not the kind of person where if I, you know, where I pick up these books, 10 steps to the anointing, um, you know, 10, you know, I was trying to paraphrase this one that I saw years ago, 10 habits of successful business entrepreneurs, um, you know, that if you kind of follow this, it will kind of be the key to success. Ecclesiastes blows those kind of things out of the water, doesn't it? There is, there's no real path to success. You'll see that in the next chapter where it says, you know, the race is not to the swift. You know, try telling that to Hussein um, Bolt. <laughs> but it's true. It's not to the swift. We cannot manipulate God. We cannot get to that point where we can say that if we do all these things in this particular sequence, God has to bless me. Or God has to do this. The freedom of God is such that if you understand him as a person, he is free. Probably, if you really believe, you know, come to the, the truth of it, he's actually more freer than we are. Believe it or not. But he's good. God is good. The reality is, is that we don't know how his wisdom works out. Why people go through the things that they do go through to the point where they have to now endure hardships and we have to go through them and trust that God is good in the midst of it. But when you're dealing with an eternal God who sees all things at the same time, you have to realize when, when, when we're saying to him, but God, why am I going through this hardship? Why is life difficult? Why am I have to go through the struggle? And he says, but my son, my daughter, you're seated with me in heavenly places. Ephesians 2.6. Please note, when you, if you go back and read that, it says that Paul says, note that raised is in the past tense. It's already done. God already sees you with him. God is like almost, what are you talking about? You're with me. I'm the eternal God. Your suffering is but for a moment. This is what Romans 8 is about, isn't it? Likewise, you will say, well, the wicked, how comes the wicked are enjoying life? And the luxury, and they're living long, a long life. And God will reply, and he says, they're already suffering an eternal punishment. Revelations 20, 11 to 15, again, for your, for your notes. They're already suffering. 
They just don't know it. We should refresh ourselves what the Bible has to say about the creature-creature distinction. The creature-creator distinction. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Isaiah 55, 8-9. Let me conclude. So looking back over these, these last three sections, for section one, I would, I would paraphrase this and say, uh, what does it tell us? There is a true king that reigns above all earthly kings, and he should be followed above all else. That's, the sum, that's my summary of authority. Obey the authorities, but as Jesus said, do not render to Caesar the things that are God's. Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but give to God the things that are God's. Number two, section two, there is a true judge that sees what no earthly judge can see, and unlike earthly judges who give sentences in years and acquits the guilty, we have an eternal judge who gives out eternal sentences and never acquits the guilty or the sinners. Section three, there is a true wisdom exceeds, that exceeds our wisdom, a wisdom that is infinite, that sees both beginning and end and knows that all things will work together for good. My final question today is, do you love God? And do you believe he is good? That's the sum of the matter. So if the team wants to come up, And I will pray. Father, as your word says, all things work together for good for them that love you and are called according to your purpose, Lord. And this is something, dear Lord, that we have to believe, um, not because our current events may, 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 may make us feel hopeful, but we have to believe that when you say your words, that when, what you revealed through your prophets through your apostles, are to build our hope, to build our dependence upon you. Forgive us where we have not done so, Lord. Forgive us where we have tried to um, not live by your revelation, but to, as it were, make out our own way. Lord, forgive us for the times where we've been envious of the wicked, where we have been tempted to give up any pursuit of righteousness and and just jack it in and just do what, what pleases us, Lord, as tempting as that might be. And Lord, help us to follow the authorities, particularly of this land, Lord, as best as we can. Help us to know the wisdom, the Lord God, that you have given in our leaders, Lord. And at the same time, Father, help us to not concede to them which only really belongs to you. Help us to serve you faithfully, Lord, and remember that you are the true king king of this world, the king of our hearts, Lord, and serve you well. Thank you for this time, Lord, because for such a time as this, we have heard your word, we've heard your promise. Help us to obey it, Lord, with all our hearts. Amen.
Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.